Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Elliot Schwartz. Elliot is a data analytics consultant for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. In this capacity, he helps apply data and analytics to support athlete performance, health, and wellness. Elliot has done data analytics consulting for clients, including U.S. Figure Skating and a leading orthopedics research center. He has been an official for U.S. Figure Skating for more than 20 years. He was with Procter & Gamble for 17 years in a variety of data research and engineering-focused roles. Earlier career stops included Speedline Technologies, Alcoa, and Los Alamos National Research Laboratory. Elliot earned both his bachelor's degree in applied mathematics and materials science and engineering and his PhD in materials engineering, both from MIT. He lives in the state of Maine. Elliot, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Jair. Thanks for inviting me to join you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm glad that Beth Benati Kennedy connected us. So let's start with discussing your work with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. I talked a little bit about it in the introduction, but can you provide some color on the kind of work you do with them and with the national governing bodies and with athletes themselves? Sure. So I'm part of a team at the U.S. OPC that's called Performance Innovation. And so our team is all about delivering data analytics and technology solutions to answering key questions related to athlete performance, health, and wellness. My role in particular is to really serve as almost a program manager for performance innovation. So I really spend a lot of time talking to the national governing bodies. Those are what we call like our national sports federations, USA Swimming, US Figure Skating, pick your favorite Olympic and Paralympic sport. And so I work with them to really understand, again, the key questions they're trying to answer understand the tools that they're using and whether they're serving their needs or whether there are other solutions that I can help connect them with, whether it's within our organization or maybe college or universities with whom we're partnering or have a relationship with, or also could be other solutions as well, or sometimes I do the work myself. Okay. So there's been obviously a massive jump in the extent to which data and analytics, maybe even big data is used to drive athlete performance. What sports do you tend to focus on when you talk about working with the national governing bodies? Are there particular sports on which you focus more than others? To to an extent, yes. So there, with the national governing bodies, there's a wide range of staff size and funding available. And Just like the way that data analytics has evolved in professional sports, it's basically a story of follow the money. And so you can imagine the organizations that have more money and more resources are doing more in the data and analytics spaces. And so some of them have one or more full-time analysts of their own. 
And so with those national, some of those might be like USA track and field or USA swimming. And so my role with those NGBs is really just to be in touch with them and provide a sounding board if needed, but they're largely very self-sufficient. So I'm working more with the NGBs that are a little bit smaller. And also, unsurprisingly, I work more with NGBs that are maybe a little bit closer to my experience. So I've been a figure skating official for over 20 years. And that's actually how my sports analytics journey started, was I started answering questions using data that I was being asked by coaches, athletes, and eventually got connected with the high performance or senior high performance director for U.S. figure skating and started working with him. And then from there, started working with the U.S. OPC. And so in addition to figure skating, now I'm working with a lot of the other acrobatic sports, okay. uh, artistic swimming, men's gymnastic, diving. And then I've done some work also for some of the winter sports like free ski aerials and half pipe. You know, basically mm. anything that's judged, I've naturally gravitated toward because I have a lot of experience with doing analytics in that space. So what are some of the ways that you particularly help apply data and analytics to these governing bodies or to the athletes? Right. On the performance side, it's really about understanding how our athletes are comparing with other athletes across the world, certainly in terms of their general performance, but also finding ways to break down performance into its component parts. And really looking critically at, again, how are our athletes faring versus other athletes? And also, there's a strong component of understanding the judging systems, what's valued and what's going to get our athletes points. Because, you know, obviously the sport is paramount, but you also have to understand the system by which you're being assessed and game it a little bit. And so that's part of the analytics I do. It might be something from a gap analysis to something called a Monte Carlo simulation, where I look mm -hmm. at all the possible results based on a set of variable inputs. And so I do that both to understand, again, our medal chances, but it's probably most useful when we're looking at a team event. So like gymnastics has a team event, so does figure skating. And there's some gymnastics, you accumulate points based on the athlete performances. In figure skating, there in the team event, the Olympics, there are eight event segments. And it operates like a swim meet or a track meet where within each of those event segments, the athletes collect points for their teams based on their placements. And so something we've done in figure skating mm -hmm. is look at what are our medal chances based on different choices of which athletes we use. Because in figure skating, the team event comes first. So we certainly want to do as well as we can in the team event, but we also want to give our athletes a chance to do their best in their individual events that follow. And so we're also looking critically at how much competition time do we want an athlete to have before their individual event? And again, look at what impact that might have on the team event result. So that's something I've done as well. Cool. So you're doing a bunch of simulations, Monte Carlo or otherwise, and looking at how to optimize the configuration of the team, how to optimize the sort of potential team results versus potential individual results for the athletes when they're in the individual competitions. Correct. And is there an element of it that's, my words, hacking the judging algorithm, if you will, where you're looking at how past events have been judged and what drove the decisions and trying to unpack how to maximize your points, if you will? Yeah, it's a great question. So certainly my most experience is in figure skating, and I've done a lot of analysis in the past to understand the relationship between scoring on the technical elements, like the jumps, the spins, the lifts, and the artistic marks. And then I'm now expanding that to other sports and 
trying to amass data that's going to give us a better understanding of exactly that, like how the events are actually judged. Because in figure skating, it's the one acrobatics where you get a very detailed protocol on element by element scores and also are the artistic marks. Gymnastics, diving, artistic swimming, artistic swimming is about to change, but in the other sports, none of that exists. That's published. And so one of the projects we're working on is how do we amass that data to be able to give more insight to our high performance teams, our coaches, our athletes. And are you also doing things to help the athletes in sort of individual activities, like looking at how somebody may stick a landing in gymnastics to help them figure out whether there's something they're doing and the tumbling part of it that drives whether or not they're able to come down and hold that landing. I'm envisioning the athletes all wired up with the sensors all over their body and and that kind of thing where you're measuring all that stuff. Is that part of what you do as well? I personally do not do that. And some of the things around like jump mechanics and the coaches and the athletes are the best experts in that space. And then certainly some of the biomechanists we have in our team will work with athletes on that as well. And in some cases, we are using some sensors or devices to measure elements of supports, the proper biomechanics. In some projects, I'm involved with basically being a person that contributes to like how do you use quantitative information to guide action, but I'm not the expert in the spaces around biomechanics. And so I leave that to the expert. Interesting that it divides up in that way. In terms of some of the work that you're doing with these individual sports, how much of a difference does it make in the analyses that you do between, I'll say, letting the coach kind of determine the best configuration for the team and what the data and analytics is showing? And is it a hard sell in a sport like gymnastics to convince the team coach to go with a different direction than what he or she might think in their gut? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that I've been really addressing my entire career, including my engineering career at Procter & Gamble. Mm -hmm. I view that experience as really valuable because when I was working with product designers, especially when computer-aided engineering or engineering modeling and simulation was newer, people were less familiar with it. And some people were a little bit threatened by someone who, outside of their design process, providing input on their design, like And some people reacted in a way that was almost akin to me telling them that their baby was ugly. And so I needed to, one of the key things is to build trust. And certainly some people will grant that trust at the beginning. Some people, you really have to work for it to earn it. And I would say in the sports space, it's the same things. What I try to do to make as good a process as possible and build that trust is make sure I listen before I recommend. And certainly if an athlete or a coach or a team has questions that can be answered with analytics, I make sure I focus on their questions first before I introduce my own questions and my own analytical approaches. We've undoubtedly come a long way since the days of sabermetrics and Billy Bean in the baseball world. I have to imagine it's still winning hearts and minds, one heart and mind at a time. Exactly. I'm another provider and I'm another Mm -hmm. provider of a tool just like your strength and conditioning coach or your sports scientist or your nutritionist or your sports psychologist. Like we're providing tools that are meant to support the athlete and the coach. But the most important skill you can bring to that work is the ability to listen and to build trust. These are obviously elite athletes at the top of their sport. What's the difference between an athlete at this level, who's taking full advantage of these kind of capabilities and one who isn't? Have you modeled that kind of difference? 
I haven't looked specifically at that kind of difference. And I would say in terms of, again, I talk about analytics and using data as an example of one tool, just like a lot of the other tools that are available to coaches and athletes. I think in every case it's different and which one has the biggest impact or even the relative impacts is really hard to discern. The idea is really just to give the athlete the best chance for success possible. In some cases, you've got athletes who are just prodigious talents and they're going to win almost no matter what. But at the Olympics and the Paralympics, I think we're seeing now that the competitive field is becoming more and more competitive. And yeah. so sometimes very incremental or seemingly small advantages can decide between whether someone wins gold or whether someone wins a medal or yeah. whether they don't. So we're just trying to figure out what are all the tools that we can bring to bear and use them in the right way with each athlete and each coach. How amenable overall do you feel like our U.S. Olympic movement is to applying these kind of techniques across the various sports? The USOPC, where I work, is very open to it and amenable to it. And the fact that my position was created and that other positions in the data and analytics space, both on the performance and the health and wellness side, has been an area where we've really staffed up. That says to me that the USOPC believes in data and analytics as a tool for learning and yeah. for setting our athletes up for success. And then across the movement, I would say part of my role is also to build awareness and build comfort with data analytics and technology. And so I think across our Olympic and Paralympic movement in the U.S., like anything, there's variability. But I think probably more people are open to it than not. What's your sense? And I know this is probably just a guess. There's roughly 200 countries in the world. How many countries that are participating in our Olympics when they come together, do you think are using these kind of techniques to a meaningful degree? That's a really great question. And certainly one that I think from a from an intelligence standpoint, we should probably understand better than we do. If I had to throw out a number, I would say out of those 250, maybe even 100. I mean, there are over 100 countries who if I remember correctly, I think over 100 different countries won medals at the last Summer Olympics. Mm. And so if you have an athlete with immense talent, then that can certainly trump everything. But yeah, I would guess that a vast majority of them are using analytics, at least to some extent. Data and analytics, excuse me, it doesn't have to be big data. Like it can be relatively small and still be useful. And I think the best coaches are using data to some extent in how they coach their athletes and how they design their training and how they monitor their health and wellness and help keep them injury free. So I think almost every coach does this naturally and internally. And now I think we're just getting a little bit more explicit, maybe a little bit more rigorous about how we do that. And also the fact that we have specialists in that space now who are providing that service. In some sports and like baseball and basketball, there's been a little bit of criticism, right, of these techniques kind of changing the game, right? In baseball, with the players swinging for the fences, which ends up meaning more strikeouts, fewer balls in play. In basketball, the, the sort of death of the mid-range jumper. Yeah. Have you seen in the sports that you're working on similar sort of controversies develop about how data and analytics are changing the nature of the sport? I and mean, I'm thinking about figure skating again, because that's always my reference point since it's what I know best. And I would say there's a lot of discussion in figure skating about the impact on the sport from changing the judging system, which predated the use of data and analytics, but moving to a judging system that's less holistic and more granular yeah. has certainly led to a proliferation of data that we didn't previously have. And yeah has opened us to analytics. So I would say the change in that case, the change of the judging system, but that's really what's changed the sport more mm -hmm. than using data and analytics. I think just having 
again, a more quantitative system has led to maybe a change in the balance between the focus on individual elements and the program as a whole. And some people feel that's cost the sport some fans. And I wouldn't argue against that fact. I don't know if people have data to prove it, but certainly we would love to increase our fan engagement and our viewership in figure skating. So I would say probably an effort to be more transparent and objective in judging has led to changes in the sport, which are both positive and negative. Certainly in the case of figure skating, there's been a belief that the new approaches to judging have emphasized athleticism maybe more than grace, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How far along do you think we are on this data journey for the leading athletes? Are we hitting a point where we're tapping out the potential of data and analytics, or are we closer still to the beginning? I think in a lot of cases, certainly with the Olympic and Paralympic sports, I think in a lot of cases, we're closer to the beginning because Mm. I think there's still more we can do in the performance space. One of the things about Olympic and Paralympic sports is we don't have a third-party data provider giving us a lot of data on a silver platter. Like the NBA, all the teams get like incredibly detailed data from second spectrum and Baseball is now, baseball and tennis are using Hawkeye. And in in the Olympic and Paralympic sports, we don't have that. So a lot of our work right now is actually more in the data collection space than in the analytics space. It's like, how do we even get the data that would enable us to answer the questions that would have an impact on athlete performance? And that's something that I'm very passionate about. A lot of that comes down to, in some fashion, analyzing video. Right. And right now, it's a very manual process and very painstaking. I think a lot of countries and in a lot of sports have a lot of efforts going in how do you automate that work, but it's surprisingly difficult yeah. to automate that. And so that's something that we're working on now because I think that's essential to progress. And then I would say in the health and wellness space, a lot of athletes are now wearing devices such as Apple Watch or Garmin or Aura Rings, Whoop devices. There are a lot of players in this space now. In order to be, they're all competing with each other for the athlete's dollar or even the recreational athlete's dollar. And so I think they all have some sort of algorithm that they're using to provide some sort of output metrics, but it's a black box that we can't see into for the most part. And so I think there's still a lot of work going on for individual athletes, coaches, and sports as far as figuring out, can I trust this metric? What is it really telling me about my health and wellness that's relevant to my sport? And so I think there's still a lot of understanding that's going on now of that. And I think, yeah, there's still a lot of people figuring out how do I really collect that data? And again, how do I use it? Because I think what we're finding is any kind of data collection with elite athletes, it needs to be easy, convenient, and essentially like seamless and invisible. And so finding ways to do that, again, these wearables offer that, Right. it means that we need to really understand what are the output metrics and what can they really tell us that's going to benefit the athlete. So that's something that we're still working through. Are data and analytics being used to look at diet, to look at recovery time, to look at workout frequency, duration, all those kind of things, the kinds of things that that an athlete in and of themselves probably wouldn't be able to get off of their wearable. Yeah. So yes, yes, and yes. Okay. And and the ones that you named are really important ones. And those are also ones that, as you said, are harder to capture with a wearable. And as I mentioned before, it's really important that we take as little of the athlete's time and effort as possible. And so we're still working through how do we collect data on some of the factors that you mentioned 
without burdening the athlete. Certainly, like them writing down everything they eat and getting plugged into a computer is a pretty arduous thing to ask an elite athlete to do. Exactly. And if some want to do that, if that's part of their process, then great. And I've seen some athletes who do that because they feel it helps them and helps them stay on track, helps them stay accountable. But yes, it's not something that we can ask of every athlete. In your work with the individual governing bodies, how deeply into the sports are these techniques now going? As I mentioned, we're still at the point where we're doing at least as much effort on data collection as we are on analysis. And so I think there's a lot of variability on the sports and where they are. And again, just like with baseball and the other pro sports, like baseball, I think, sprinted out to the lead in terms of analytics because there was interest. And also, it was a much more, I'll say, simple matchup between pitcher and catcher. It was a simpler problem than the problem of trying to look at the impact of like 22 football players on a result of a single play. And so a lot of the work that's going on is really figuring out what defines performance. Like we have a lot of data on what I call like metadata on a result. What was the date? What was the competition? Who won? Who lost? What was the placement? And then some sort of expression of the result, whether it's a time, a distance, or a score. And so now again, the hard work is really going into How do we collect data about performance that's more meaningful and can be utilized to really impact training and strategy? Different sports are in different places based on how, I'll take swimming, for example. So swimming, it's easy to quantify the results, right? You have a time, but then understanding things like stroke count and how well does an athlete get off the blocks and how well does the athlete execute their flip turns and how do they pace themselves through the race? Like there's a lot of things to understand how do the stroke mechanics change through a race. There's a lot of detail around the full race that requires a lot of effort to break down, right? There's no easy way to to measure any of that. And so it's a lot of work to figure out and collect that data that can then be analyzed and then be used to create insights that, again, would affect strategy and training. Yeah, and certainly you can send them, in that case, into the water with a bodysuit that's got all the sensors built into it in a practice setting. So you can do all of the biomechanical analysis that you mentioned, but you're not going to get that from a race, which forces you back into what I think you described earlier was a pretty manual process to code video into something that can then be used for analysis. Correct. Do you see when you get down into the sports, and I know figure skating is probably your reference point, did you call it a few minutes ago? Do you see parents going over the top to get their kids access to these kinds of analytic techniques before they've really proven themselves to be on a trajectory? Or at what point does it really make sense to start using these without being over the top? Yeah, it's a great question. And I probably won't provide a great answer to this. I would say I haven't had many or maybe even any conversations with parents about in analytics and wearables. I don't think the parents are thinking maybe that far into. In most cases, they're not thinking that far into like their development of their child slash athlete. What I see is certainly sports has become a year-round endeavor. Like youth sports has become a huge economic activity in the United States. And I think almost every sport started off as seasonal. And if at some point a child and a family is forced to decide, am I going to remain a recreational athlete and do this seasonally or... Am I going to commit to this year round? Because I think almost every sport has evolved to the point where you can play it or practice it year round. And if you want to be among the best, you have to do that. And so 
that's where I see the big change right now is making it a year-round endeavor and then also trying to get to the best coaching. If it's a team sport, how do you get onto the best team? I see a lot more focus on that level than on the utilization of data and analytics. But I wouldn't be surprised if, one, I'm naive about that, and two, that would not be increasing in the future as parents try harder to make their children into elite athletes. Yeah, and I think also as you get parents who have used those things themselves, right, in their own athletic endeavors and then are giving their kids access to the same thing. Yeah, I think we see that in a lot of sports now where you have elite athletes who are the children of elite athletes. Switching gears, let me talk a little bit about the work that you've done with U.S. figure skating. You, you made reference to it during the discussion. Can you describe a range of things that you're doing as an official consulting on data and analytics and other things? Yeah, sure. First, I'll explain the different, I guess, roles that I play with U.S. figure skating. And then, you know, some of them are related to my now paid job. Some of them are things that I do as a volunteer. So I started off with U.S. figure skating as a pure volunteer. And so all of the officials in U.S. figure skating, the people that officiate at the competition, the judges, the referees, the accountants, music people, announcers, all of those people are volunteers. They are not mm. paid for their time. So we are reimbursed for travel, hotel, food at competitions, or those things are provided to us. But unlike some of the typical sports, baseball, basketball, football, you're not paid for judging an event or a competition. So that's how I started in figure skating. And that's something I continue to do as an official. And then, and then the other thing that in U.S. figure skating, a lot of the work that happens in U.S. figure skating is done by committees. So it might be like an official's training committee, or it might be an official's performance committee. Various committees in the organization for parents, for coaches, for development of different disciplines like singles, pairs, I stand synchronized skating. Those committees are staffed by officials, former athletes, coaches, and current athletes. And that's all done on a volunteer basis. No one's paid for that work. And that's yeah. something I've done a lot of committee work in the past. And now I'm on the board of my skating club. And that, again, is a volunteer endeavor. And then as far as my analytics work goes, first, I started doing it for free for people when our judging system changed in the mid-2000s, and people had questions that could be answered with data, mm -hmm. such as a lot of it was around risk and reward choices. Like all of these judging systems in these acrobatic sports are what I call risk and reward systems, where you get more points for incurring more risk or right. in higher difficulty of the tricks you're doing, but then you're also assessed on the quality of your execution, and it's harder to execute something well if it's more difficult. And so again, it's risk and reward. So yeah, coaches and athletes have back in the 2000s were asking me questions, selection of elements that would optimize their score and also impact their training time. Like, is it worth it to spend the time in training to acquire a difficult element? Or is, it, is that time better spent on increasing the quality of a less difficult element? So things like that. So I was doing that. And then at one point with the new judging system, and the more overt assessment of difficulty. Some of the judges felt like the judges used to take care of everything, assessing difficulty, quality, artistry, and expressing it in a holistic mark. Right. Now that work is divided up among a technical panel and among the judges. And so the judges at the beginning of this implementation of this new judging system were believing that their marks no longer mattered, that the competition was just being determined by the technical panel. And so some of the work that I did was assessing how true was that. 
hypothesis. And then after doing some work with coaches, one of the coaches whom I assisted, his name is Bobby Martin, he coached a pair at the 2014 Olympics. And he connected me with the senior high performance director of U.S. figure skating. And I started doing work for him. And so initially that work was paid on a contract basis. And then when I joined the USOPC in my full-time role, we rolled that work into my work at the USOPC because the USOPC was funding that work anyway. And USOPC employees are not allowed to also be paid by an NGB. So in order to continue that work, we rolled it into my role, which spans more sports now. So back to the hypothesis, was it true that the technical panel was influencing the outcome more than was intended? I think there's certainly, so I'm not going to give a definitive answer here, but I will say a few things. Because of the, so in singles, especially on the men's side, but even to an extent on the women's side, the increase in the number of quadruple jumps has caused an imbalance between the points that can be earned from technical elements versus what can be earned from program components or artistry. And that's something that continues to be debated as, is that something that needs to be rebalanced as far as like what really decides the results. And I would say it depends on the event and how close the athletes are in terms of performance. But there are some competitions where the difficulty sort of carries the day. And then there are other cases, especially it's especially true in ice dance pairs and synchronized skating where a good portion of the top skaters or teams are able to achieve the same difficulty. And so In those cases, the result is entirely determined by ultimately how the skaters execute and perform. But in terms of the officials, it comes down to the judges' marks and the technical panel's impact on differentiating the athletes or the teams in some cases becomes almost negligible because the teams are achieving the same difficulty. So it all comes down to the quality of execution of the elements and the artistry. I appreciate that it's got to be a constant struggle for the governing bodies in these sports as the athletes get stronger, more capable, in this case, of landing those quadruple jumps, right, that a generation ago wouldn't have been possible. It creates an imbalance, to your point, in terms of the people who are just accumulating points for their athleticism to others who can't do that and have to rely more on their artistry, right? Correct. I know your job as a judge is to be impartial, but how often does it happen where you see an athlete and you just go, wow? For me, it happens a lot because... I was never an elite athlete or anything close. So I marvel at all the athletes. But I would say in terms of like a specific wow, trained to take that, something makes us say, wow, we very quickly ask ourselves, why are we saying wow? Like, what is it about what the athlete is doing that is a wow? And how do we translate into that into our judging criteria to reward it appropriately? So we're trained to really assess quickly, like, If we find ourselves saying, wow, or even like enjoying a performance, we have to break it down into what it is we're enjoying and make sure again that we are rewarding it in the right way, in the right place. Yeah. And I would imagine that if those things start happening enough, that it ends up driving further changes in the scoring systems. Correct. Yeah. And there was a scoring system changed in figure skating after 2018. So ever since this judging system was created in the mid 2000s, the range of marks that could be given for execution of elements was minus three, minus two, minus one, zero, one, two, three. And because of what the athletes were achieving, there was a feeling that those basically a seven point scale wasn't enough Mm. to differentiate what the athletes were capable of. So we now have a system that's minus five to plus five, an 11 point scale that we can use to evaluate 
how well each element was executed. I feel like there's a Spinal Tap reference that should come in there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. And a lot of the athletes do turn it up to 11. They're amazing. Yeah. Yes, they are. Let's switch gears again. Talk a little bit about the work you were doing at Procter & Gamble. You were there for a decent amount of time. Yes. Give us a sense of the sort of mix of roles you had over the years. Yeah. So I started working at the Gillette company in 1998. And at that time, Gillette still owned, they had a pen business. And so they owned Papermate, Waterman, and Parker Pens. So I joined a research team that was responsible for developing new writing implements. So that was fascinating for me because I've always been a big fan of pens and writing instruments. And so being able to really like apply technology to what was the experience of the hand feel in writing what was the right ink viscosity, all these things about writing that most people would never worry about. Also right. even just consumer understanding of how pens are used because you have like some pens that we used to refer to as jewelry, like the kind of pen that an executive would put in her or his pocket. I would essentially have the same writing implement inside of it, like carrying the ink as right. something that you can get for a couple of bucks off the shelf. But again, it was all about the packaging of that and so that was something that we looked at as well. It was just the packaging of the writing implement and also which consumer segments cared about that stuff. So anyway, I worked on pens for a while. Just about a year and a half after I joined the company, Gillette sold those businesses. And so I then started working in an oral care group and Gillette owned the oral B business. And so I started working in a group that in a similar way to what I did with the pens was really all about understanding the cleaning of teeth and the health of teeth. And so we were looking at toothbrushes, which types of bristle designs would penetrate between the teeth effectively and create the best cleaning experience. Also, were there new types of oral care that we could bring, that we could develop, that there'd be a market for, that we could bring to consumers at home? So I did that for a while, for a few years. And then all the while, I was utilizing modeling and simulation where I could based on my experience. But at that point, I was looking for an opportunity to use modeling and simulation full-time. And the, the Blades and Razors engineering department decided to create a full-time position. And I applied for that and had the good fortune to be able to move into that position and really launch that effort in that organization. And so that really led to probably, I'll say, what was the bulk of my career, which was kind of similar to what I'm doing now talking to the different design groups about a problem they wanted to solve. And then how could I bring a modeling and simulation solution to that? And what ended up happening was I would identify a tool. I would work with the designers. We'd come up with a work process that, that was effective and did help us move faster and innovate. And then there'd be another question that I was asked to answer that required a different modeling and simulation technology. And so in most cases, I would hire somebody to come in and work with the technology that I had developed and proven out, and then move on to exploring the next one. And I did that over a number of years. So I did that working in Blades and Razors, and it got to the point where we were doing a variety of modeling and simulation techniques to look at product design, process design, equipment design, and also just manufacturing flows. Like how many of each type of component do we need to have between each type of machine to keep things going even when a machine went down for a repair or down in an unplanned way. And so during that time, we became part, we were acquired by Procter & Gamble in 2005. And that was wonderful for me in the modeling and simulation space because Procter & Gamble had a really well-developed effort in that space. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately able to have a lot more colleagues who are experts 
in various modeling and simulation technologies. And yeah, it was just, it was a lot of access to people and tools that I hadn't enjoyed previously. So that was great. And then, so eventually I started as a solo or an individual contributor. Then I grew my team. I became more of a people manager mm-hmm. and doing less of the technical work myself. And then toward the end of my career at Procter & Gamble, I was asked to lead an effort in bringing modeling to consumer research. And so I led a group that did modeling and also operated the tests of having people try our razors before they hit the market or even while they were in the market to to see what kind of experience they were having with the product and what were our opportunities to innovate or improve the experience. So your degree work at MIT and your early career work focused on fluid mechanics. Your (laughs) PhD thesis I read included research that had been performed on the Space Shuttle Columbia, which is pretty cool. How did that develop as your initial professional interest? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it was just a convergence of things that I liked and things that were interesting to me. So when I started college, my intent was to major in math. And that's what I did. I took a computer science course my freshman year because MIT had just created a math with computer science major. That first computer science class caused me to march myself into the office and change my major back to math because computer science was not my path. But I also was enjoying my physics and chemistry classes at MIT. And I saw other students in my math classes who were far more talented than I was. And I thought, okay, I need to do something else here too. So again, since I like the chemistry and the physics, I thought about the different engineering majors. And thankfully at MIT, it's very easy to move among different departments and different schools. So I was fortunate that I was able to take classes in material science and engineering. And by my process of elimination, that's the one I converged on. Like it uses chemistry and physics. It was still a bit of a newer discipline. And I had heard the professors were really good. So I decided to take that as my path. And then in my junior year, I took a class on what they call, what's called transport phenomena, which Mm -hmm. is fluid mechanics, heat transfer and mass transfer. And that's a very mathematical discipline. And so for me, that was like the right combination of math and science. And so I became really interested in that particular aspect of material science and engineering. And so I approached the professor. And again, this is thanks to him. He has a very active undergraduate research program. And so I approached the professor for that class and asked him if there was an opportunity to work on a project with him. And fortunately, at that time, he had been thinking about there was this opportunity with this multi-user facility on an upcoming space shuttle mission. It was an electromagnetic levitation facility. And my professor had an idea of experiments that could be performed on it to measure properties of what are called metastable materials in a non-contact way. And they were all based on like very old hydrodynamic principles. And so he asked me to research those and basically assess the feasibility of the project and the approach. And so I did that as an undergraduate. And then again, more fortune during my senior year, my professor received that grant, that proposal was granted to work on that NASA program And he offered that to me as a project. And so that became my project for my graduate school and for my doctoral thesis. So data and analytics has been a pretty consistent theme for you professionally. Do you feel like you've been data-driven in your career choices or more opportunistic? (laughs) It's a really good question. I would say probably more opportunistic and I'll say experiential. Data can be qualitative as well as quantitative. So certainly there was an aspect of qualitative data in assessing my career path and my experiences and my choices. At times, I guess I would employ some data techniques, like when I'm making decisions 
I like to use an approach I learned at Procter & Gamble called best value options analysis, which yeah. is a really fancy term for just figuring out what are the factors in a decision that are important to you? How would you weight each one? Right. And then how would you rate each one? And then you can do a little math to figure out how close is this to ideal and how do these different options compare to each other? Putting your data analytics consultant hat on, are there ways that you think that someone could apply those techniques in navigating their career journey? Yeah. As I think back to my own career journey and with a lot of help from Beth Kennedy, Beth was very big on understanding yourself. And there are various tools out there or maybe more rooted in science than others. And some are more hotly debated than others. But I think that I'm thinking about things like Myers-Briggs or DISC or StrengthsFinder. I think they're all really helpful in helping you to understand yourself and what your natural skills and preferences are. And so I think taking some of those assessments are ways to use data you know, because they have algorithms behind them, right? You're responding to questions. You may not be doing the analysis yourself, but someone's come up with an algorithm to help identify you and your tendencies or preferences. And so that's something that I've done with Beth that's always been really helpful. And I would say it's something that I think can be valuable to everyone as they go forward in their careers. Like, was it Socrates or Plato who said, know thyself? I think that's really important to a successful and an enjoyable life and career. Yeah, it's very true. Although I don't think we're at the point where you could use a Monte Carlo simulation to figure out whether you're going to be successful <laughs> at the next job you're considering. Maybe not Monte Carlo. And then I would say also as far as maybe more quantitative data and analytics, I mean, you could analyze things about a company such as it's like financial performance and it's turnover and other factors that may be important to you in a decision that you're making and where they fit in their industry and what their prospects are. But yeah, I think the most important thing is to know yourself. Yeah, it's very true. Apart from knowing yourself, last question, what are the two or three things that you feel like you've learned over the course of your career that you would want to pass on to our audience? Yeah, again, the, yeah, the knowing yourself part, and even more, I mean, I'll say specifically about the knowing yourself part, knowing your strengths and appreciating them. So I would say my career progression has been somewhat opportunistic, but it's also been driven by trying to move into roles where I would have an opportunity to leverage my strengths to a greater extent than I was in the moment and also to work, to do like work in areas that were of interest to me. So I would say knowing and appreciating and leveraging your strengths is number one. When I discovered Marcus Buckingham, I think that was probably with Beth's help as well. That mm -hmm. really changed how I thought about myself and my career. He's the one that did a lot of the research to really create the initial versions of the Strengths Finder, which I think is an amazingly useful tool. So I would say, okay, yeah. know your strengths. I would also say, know your values and what's important to you. And that can change over the course of your life and your career. In fact, I can guarantee you that it will. Yeah. So I think knowing what's important to you at a given time is really important. Like I'll give you an example. I applied when I left Procter & Gamble and decided to try to work in sports analytics I was fortunate to make it to the final round after a number of rounds of projects and interviews and applications. I made it to the final round of interviews for an analyst role at NFL, a pro football team. And I was invited to the team's facility and it was fascinating. And I'm so glad I got to see that world. But I was, how old was I then? I think I was 48 or maybe even closer to 50 at the time. Yeah. And I looked at the role, I looked at what the life was for the people working for that team. And I said, okay. If this job existed when I was 22, 23, 25, yeah. yes, this is the job I would have wanted. Like you're basically on call 24 hours a day for the entire year, except for the three weeks between 
optional training camp and mandatory training camp in the summer. Right. At 48 or 50, that was not the right work for me. Yeah, too full on. Yeah. So that's just a simple example for myself. But know what's important to you in a given role, like is how much you earn the most important is what you learn the most important, how much time do you need to have for yourself or for your family, friends, loved one? How much autonomy do you want? Like these are all things to be, to understand, like, are you looking to learn something new? Those are all really important. And then I would also say being really in touch with your manager is really important. Mm -hmm. Understanding like, what is your manager? Because your manager is going to have the biggest say in your progression in your career. So you've got to meet that manager's needs. And so understanding what's important to them, because the best manager is someone that will serve as a partner to you, will guide you, will challenge you, but will also advocate for you. And so it's important to develop that relationship. And I would say as part of the relationship with manager, if I gave some advice to my former self, I think I would say, if you find yourself spending a significant period of time with a manager that's not providing those things to you, move on. Like some people will say that, an experience with a bad manager, or I'll say maybe more kindly, a bad manager for you is a good learning experience and helps you build skills. I would argue that it's not worth your time. Move on to someone that's going to value you. Life is too short to deal with someone that's going to be frustrating and that's who's not going to support you. So sometimes you can have success by waiting for that manager to leave. Like if you feel like you're in the right role and the right company, can choose to wait it out and hope that manager leaves. And I've actually had that happen a couple of times. But again, if you find yourself in a situation that's not good and it's largely because of the manager, move on, either within the company or out of it. Thank you. This has been really interesting, deeper into the world of Olympic sports analytics than I probably ever have before. But I learned a lot and I appreciate you making the time. Thank you, Jer. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And yeah, I love your podcast. I've been listening and learning from many of them. That's awesome. I appreciate that. So thanks again, Elliot, and have a great day. Thank you, Jer. You too. I'd like to thank Elliot for joining me today to discuss his work with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, his broader data analytics-focused career, and what he's learned along the way. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.